This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Ladies and gentlemen, from Los Angeles, California, the Dawgs! Morrison in the early days was very shy, had never sang. Can you sing one for me? You know, just sort of just sing it. And he sang Moonlight Drive. So Jim says, okay, everybody go home and write some songs, you know, because we need some songs. So I went went home and wrote Light My Fire. I think he's dead. But boy, there's some mysterious things surrounding his death. The people would just file out kind of quietly after the song. And I always thought, wow, that's powerful. Hi, this is Denny Somak, the producer, the author, the rock historian. Now, over my long career, I've curated my huge archive, and I'm here to share it with you. Today, it's The Doors. Anita? Yes, Denny. Very excited about this. Love The Doors. Right, Right at the time where I was old enough, I was so in love with Jim Morrison. I would have run away with anyone who just even looked like Jim Morrison. But luckily for me, because I would have run away, no one did. Okay. <laughs> he and stood to, alone. He stood yeah. alone. And the Doors still sell uh, millions of albums, and their music is used in so many films and television shows, which is why their legacy... I hope they're getting some money from that, the yeah, real, oh, yeah, survivors. They do. They do. You know, the Doors, uh, I didn't mention this on the show but I was going to cover it on a future show because I have them talking about it. They were one of the few groups that if you look at the first uh, two or three albums, the songs are all credited to the four of them. No matter who wrote it, they shared everything four ways, the same way that Lennon and McCartney shared everything, no matter who wrote the song. Anyway, we'll talk about that. that. No, I think that set a a precedent that uh, didn't um, go unnoticed by many bands, R.E.M., Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Had, Richards. Well, well, Tom Petty had an issue about that. Absolutely. And I always look to see who is credited. You know, I'm a liner notes geek. And I always look to see who's credited as the writers of a song. And some songs that you might even think are some signature songs of bands, nobody in the band even wrote the song. You know, yeah. there's some Led Zeppelin songs that are derivative of songs that were written by some blues artists. Oh, don't worry, there, we got a whole show on that one. There you go. So I'm not alone in being a liner's note geek. Okay, so as I said, uh, The Doors are still very, uh, very much out there and huge right now with the vinyl reissues that are going on. The Doors and albums are Robbie, coming out on vinyl. Robbie Krieger, right? He released yeah. some new music. Uh, that yes, was his did. ninth solo album. And yes. uh, I got to tell you an amazing story about John Densmore's new book. Okay, so I was reading Patti Smith's Year of the Monkey, and she was talking about Sam Shepard. And then I read a Sam Shepard biography, and he was talking about this mystic that he was just like devoted his life to. Okay. And his name is uh, George Gurdjieff. And the name of the book that I went online and bought was Meetings with Remarkable Men. And I started reading it. A week later, you sent me uh-huh. John Densmore's book, which is based right. on George Gurdiff's and Meetings with Remarkable Men. And I was like, what? Yes. So the universe yes. was telling me yes. that I was, had to read that book. 
Well, it's pretty incredible, gonna, right? Yes, it is. And we we have we spoke to John Densmore for this show, and you'll you'll hear his uh, parts of uh, that interview uh, in just a little bit. It was great to talk to him. I mean, oh, he's uh, so smart. The book that I'm, I started his book, and he is so smart. And I just want to say that. Um, I probably missed an opportunity. I could have called my book Meetings with Remarkable Men. <laughs> yes, you could have. Yes, for those that don't know, Anita has a book out. And what's the name of your book? Well, it's a memoir, and I named it after the Joni Mitchell song, and it's called You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio. And right. it's only available, it's a self-published deal, and it's only available uh, to order, print to order on Amazon.com. Okay. Amazon. And the we- internet. We will have some of the people that you talk about in that book on this show, won't great. we? Great. That's okay. great. All right. Now, uh, yeah. you want to tell what we're, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, the big anniversary for Jim Morrison's death. Yeah. It's so uh, sad this, because, this, yeah. This summer. Yeah. So. He, had, he had just moved to Paris. They had finished recording L.A. Woman. And he, was, he and his girlfriend were in Paris. And uh, sadly, uh, Jim became part of what we now know or what we now call uh, the 27 Club. And the 27 Club, for those of you that don't know. Uh, it's a good thing of, not to know about it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it came about because of the tragic coincidences in rock and roll history. Uh, the term applies to musicians, uh, including Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Robert Johnson, Pig Pen from The Grateful Dead, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and there's actually a few others who all passed away at the age of 27. So talk about being at your peak too, because when Jim died, the Doors had released six albums in five years and they'd sold over 4 million albums. And John Densmore, who is our special guest today, before we hear Denny, your recent conversation with John, let's hear John talking about the origin of the band. Ray and Jim were in film school together and uh, I was sort of an old friend of Robbie's. Uh, Robbie got me onto a transcendental meditation class and we went and Ray was there. And Ray suggested we form a band. Morrison in the early days was very shy, had never sang. It was just a total, uh, well, I'm going to do it because I I can do it, you know. But the thing that uh, got me was his lyrics and the fluidity of his, his melodies and stuff. And this was all a cappella, didn't know how to play any instrument, didn't know how to play one chord on one instrument. So it was just sort of off the top of his head, but it was so natural. I knew that there was something real special there. Well, now we know, Denny, that Jim Morrison was a shy poet. Who would have ever thought that? (laughs) Of course, he became the voice of the Doors, but it was Ray Manzarek's signature organ playing that we could call the heart and soul of the band's sound. And Ray was uh, the bass player, but he didn't play bass. Uh, (laughs) As most musicians know, uh, Ray played the bass parts on a Fender Rhodes piano keyboard, and that signature sound that we speak of was a Vox Continental combo organ. Now, later on, Ray used a Gibson G101 Kalamazoo combo organ, and he did so because he kept breaking the Continental's keys. He was hitting it so hard. <laughs> how, how did you meet Ray, Denny? Well, it's, it's funny. I had the opportunity over the years to work with Ray on a couple of different projects, including the official uh, 20th anniversary Doors special that was in the, in the 80s, and we'll talk about that later. I actually got to know him and his wife, Dorothy, pretty well. Uh, he had a great voice, so I used to use him to host some shows over the years. 
Uh, also in the 80s, I, um, I, I produced that 20th anniversary show, but I would just, uh, I'd go to LA and I'd, you know, just go, I'd go out to lunch with him just to listen to stories. Cause that's all, you know, I, he'd say, okay. And that's great. Tell me some more. And one of the best ones was when he recounted his first meeting with Morrison. Uh, they met on the beach in Santa Monica, California. At the time I was playing in some jazz groups and, uh, with my brother's band, uh, Rick and the Ravens. And we played bar gigs, a place called the Turkey Joint West in Santa Monica. And, uh, guys from the film school would come down and we'd have jam sessions. I'd invite them on stage, uh, Paul Ferrara. Hey, Paul, come on up. Hey, Jim, come on, come on, man, sing a song. And Jim would come up and sing Louie Louie with my brother's band. And, uh, about a week or two before graduation, uh, we didn't know what we were going to do. I said, hey, Jim, what are you going to do, man? He said, well, I'm going to New York. I said, oh, too bad, man, because I was really starting to dig the guy. He was a lot of fun, good guy to be around with, and a real, real intellect. So about a month and a half after that, sometime in the middle of July, I'm out on the beach getting some sun and down there in Santa Monica in Venice, California. And uh, who comes walking down the beach but Jim Morrison. I said, hey, man, uh, I thought you were going to New York. And he said, no, I've stayed out here and, and I've been writing some songs. I said, really? I knew he was a writer and a poet. I said, songs, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, can you sing one for me? You know, just sort of just sing it. And he sang Moonlight Drive. And boy, when I heard those lyrics, man, let's swim to the moon, let's climb through the tide, penetrate the evening that the city sleeps to hide. And as he was singing, I could hear all the things that I could do behind it on the keyboards and the shape the song could take. And I said, God, let's get a rock and roll band together. And he said, that's exactly what I want to do. Wow, Danny, I would have loved to hear, uh, to have heard uh, Jim sing Louie Louie. <laughs> Even though there are no real official words, I'm yeah. sure he would have had, had a good uh, take on his own. Well, Moonlight Drive blows my mind every time I hear it. Um, may even be on my list. We'll get to yeah. that. Okay, we'll uh, get to that in a minute. Did you ever meet any of the doors? I did not. I have not. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that because this was embarrassing for me, as you know. I, that was my answer when you asked me. And then the other day, I found a photo of myself interviewing Robbie in the mid-90s. So I did meet him. But, you know, it's not that I didn't remember. It's just that I... It just slipped my mind, yeah, you know, okay. and I, what, I, mean, I, I guess because I, I don't know, but looking at the picture now, we look, you know, really engrossed in conversation and I'm sure he had a wonderful time. <laughs> 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 well, you know, the doors were eventually signed by Jack Holzman and Paul Rothschild, but getting a record deal back in that day uh, wasn't easy. So here's how Ray remembered it. So we took the Doors demo around to every record company in Los Angeles and got rejected by everybody. Some people even got mad and threw us out of the office and said, get out of here, you guys can't play that kind of music. You know, Jim and I walked the streets, man, and no one wanted to sign the Doors. But the only ones who wanted us were Electra Records. And they were a small folk label at the time, and they had just started getting into rock and roll. What the hell, man? Let's go where you're wanted, you know? If none of the other boys want you, go with Elektra. And uh, Elektra since has become a major record company. You know, I wouldn't want to be any of those labels that turned the doors down, that's for sure. Uh, I remember when Light My Fire came out. It was 1967, and um, I think it was at summer camp. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember it, it turned out to be the song of the summer. I knew it came out a few months earlier, but it took a few weeks and then all of a sudden, boom. Now, Robbie Krieger wrote that song 
and it was the first song he ever wrote. I had never written a song before, actually, and uh, and one day we were rehearsing, right, and so we needed uh, we needed more material because uh, we had a couple of gigs coming up, and I forget whether we'd actually. I'm, I guess we'd played a couple of gigs at that point. And then, so Jim says, okay, everybody go home and write some songs, you know, because we need some songs. And so I went went home and wrote Light My Fire. Came back the next day and we worked it out, you know. Ray put that great intro on it, the organ intro. And then uh, we we started playing it in clubs and, and then we started stretching out that middle section longer and longer until it became, you know, at first it was a pretty short little instrumental break, but then it uh, it grew into what it is today. I didn't get a chance to uh, see the original band, but I did see them with uh, Ray and guitarist Robbie Krieger when they toured in the early 2000s uh, as the doors of the 21st century. And uh, Ian Asbury of the, the Cult was doing the vocals. I have a funny story about that. Uh, I saw them at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. And after the concert, I thought I would go backstage and say hi to Ray and tell him how much I enjoyed the show. And I go back and there's incense, incense burning, black light. And <laughs> so I head back and I see Ray's brother, Rick. I mean, it was like being in 1969. Uh, you know, he's the Rick from Rick and the Ravens that we heard on the clip. Anyway, uh, I had met him before and mentioned I wanted to go back to say hi to Ray. And I asked him if I needed a backstage pass. And he looks at me and he says, it's 1969. There's no such thing as a backstage pass. (laughs) (laughs) I went back and I said hi. And uh, anyway, that's my my story. Well, I'm thrilled that you mentioned the Tower Theater because that was uh, a great hang. We both were at shows there for so many years. We saw so many great bands there. And uh, yeah, that was- Most, I guess, most known for being where Bowie recorded his uh, first live album, Live at the Tower. And don't you think the Tower could be, uh, is synonymous, I should say, with the Roxy? Yeah, I Got guess 5,000 people, right? And the- Well, the Tower holds- More, three, more than- 3,000. Okay, so, all right, but it's still close and it's yeah, still yeah. the same kind yeah, of- Yeah, no, it's the same type of, uh, type of situation, but- uh, Actually, Upper Darby. I saw, Bowie, yeah. I saw Bowie when he recorded the live album at the Tower in the 70s. And then I, I went back in the early 2000s when he went out and did that tour. And he played some small places and he played the Tower again. And I was able to get to... Oh, Bowie loved Philly. Yeah. He, he loved did. Philly, yeah. you know, because we're, we're the, we were the type of people, I guess, growing up with uh, equal parts Motown, equal parts... British rock, equal yeah. parts. You know, we, we listened to everything, doo-wop and, and the Four Seasons, and we danced, and we didn't care what kind of music it was. And our, the audiences, when the bands would say, I'm going to play a new song now, we, did, we didn't all head to the bathrooms. You know, we were that audience. So I think that's why uh, a lot of audiences, a lot of uh, bands started their tours in Philadelphia before going out. They could have well, been in New York, but that, they, that's, they... that's that's one of the reasons. But one of the main reasons, most people don't know this, is outside of Philadelphia is a place called Lidditz, Pennsylvania. And Lidditz is where most of the bands go to rehearse. They have a big place there called uh, uh, Claire Sound. 
and they do the sound systems there. So the bands go there to rehearse and they try out the sound. And usually they do a first date at Millersville State College, which is why people go, how did that, why is the band playing Millersville State College? Because it's right there. And then right. they go off and start their tours wherever right. in the country it is. But that's, that's the main reason why, why the tours were started there. Well, recently you spoke- See what you learn on this show? <laughs> recently you spoke to uh, drummer John Densmore about his new book. And I, I really want to hear what he had to say. Uh, some of the people in the book, the, the extraordinary people and, and, and the people that you would expect he would talk about, you know, they're in there. But then there's Lou Reed and Tom Petty, which yeah. I wasn't expecting. And uh, of course, he reflects on his complicated relationship with Jim. So let's hear- the first part of your conversation with John Densmore. Hey, John, how you doing? Denny. Yes. So this is your third book, John. Why? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, in the second half of my uh, uh, career, I stumbled into writing, and I found it uh, not as fun as playing live music, but... I could do it in the middle of the night by myself. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, the first two books I wrote in blood. Right. Because they were, they were cathartic experiences. And then I got this idea of, of doing a tip of the hat to all these artists that inspired me. So this one's in written in love. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's just, uh, first of all, talk about some of the people that are in the book. Um, and I will mention to everybody, the book is out. It's called The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think you mentioned that it was based on meetings with remarkable men. Is that correct? Well, the idea came from that book by yeah. Gurdjieff. Yeah. So it's basically a lot of the different artists and musicians that you talk about. Obviously, I'm going to zero in on a few. I want to get your comments. You include all sorts of people, Ravi Shankar, your mother. Uh, I mean, just you know, <laughs> Lou Reed. But I mean, I noticed you have Jim Morrison in the book and you have Ray in the book, but you don't have Robbie. Any reason? There was no, uh, I didn't omit him on purpose. Um, maybe, I don't know. Maybe because Ray and Jim have crossed over and Ooh. Robbie and I can still hang or something. I don't know. That's interesting. I like that answer. I'll use that. Now, let me just ask you, uh, some of the other people that you encountered, uh, I want to talk about. Uh, Lou Reed, for one. What was that like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, um, R.I.P. I heard he could be cantankerous. Right. Um, but I, I met him and... Um, well, first I met him on a, on a movie set, and, and he was still kind of strung out. Uh, but I told him I loved his work. And, uh, and then later uh, I met him after he came back from Czechoslovakia because um, Václav Havel, who be right. the writer who was in jail, yeah. uh, listened to Velvet Underground, and, and uh, it, it fed him. Like all these people fed me in this book. So... Uh, the president of Czechoslovakia had Lou over there for an interview and, and I met him just after that. And he was in a great mood <laughs> because, you know, we felt so uh, yeah. honored to be hang with the press. 
you talk about Janis Joplin, but you tell a story about seeing her for the first time. You and Robbie ran over during the between sets. Is it just recount that? Yeah, me. yeah. Well, we're we're playing the Fillmore, and uh, the great Bill Graham would have three groups, different groups too. Uh, uh, James Cotton Blues Band and, and Miles Davis and the Doors or whatever. And it was the airplane actually, and the bass player Jack Cassidy said, "You got." Time to run over to the other ballroom and see Big Brother. And I said, what is it, a Nazi group? What is that? (laughs) And he said, the singer, you got to go. And we did. We raced across town and walked in on on Janice singing Down on Me. Wow. Wow. I just immediately knew that, you know, she had Aretha Pipes and was going up the charts. (laughs) Went backstage and she was just great. Uh, next time I saw her, she was at Woodstock, and and she had a monkey on her back, yeah. as in drug problems, and so right. not. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, John. You saw her at Woodstock. Yeah. You guys didn't play there. Were you there as a? If you if you look at the movie while Joe Cocker is singing, you'll see yeah. me on the side of the stage for a oh. second. Okay. <laughs> Why didn't the Doors play Woodstock? I heard there was a story about that. Jim didn't want well, to do it, or somebody didn't want to yeah, play in a mud field. We, what was the story? We had played an outdoor gig, and you know, um, it, it the acoustics are difficult outside. It, yeah. It's not tra- the sound is not trapped in a building, right. and so Jim didn't want to play outdoors, and it's too bad because it's the biggest outdoor concert ever. And so I, I just happened to be uh, on the East Coast and went there anyway. Ah, okay, yeah. All right, you got a great story about Van Morrison, which I think is amazing because you guys used to cover Gloria, and of course, you know Van yeah. and Van Morrison did it. And you, 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 you took it out of the set. Well, okay, we're the house band at the Whiskey A Go Go. Them right. is coming to town. We admire, we admire them very much. Them, them, right. um, and we had played Gloria, and we thought we it would be disrespectful to play it with them uh, playing Gloria. And uh, so, but after a few nights, we became friends. And the last night, we all played Gloria together. Uh-huh. Two Morrisons, two drummers, great fun. Wow. That's the uh, first part of my conversation with John Densmore of The Doors. And wow. I, have- I, gosh, Lou Reed. I, yeah. I, yeah, I can't stop thinking about Lou Reed. Just, all right, now open your mind for a minute and try to picture Lou Reed covering love street <laughs> yeah i know it's a perfect song, right? right it's yeah. perfect for him it would yeah. have been perfect for him well you know top five this was very difficult for me the top five door songs uh there's just so many but um i thought immediately of the end right especially you know lately mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had to include When the Music's Over. Right. It's a masterpiece. The Soft Parade changed me. You know, you cannot petition the Lord with prayer. I I think, you know, I walked around saying that for years. I, I just, that changed me. And Moonlight Drive is just, it's like a perfect recording, uh, which they had a bass player, by the way. Right. right you know, the ski instructor that Cass Elliott met in Aspen (laughs) who came to LA because she told him, you know, you need, was that Doug Lubin? Yes. 
So, and the other bass player, and you and I were so excited that we knew this when we were talking about putting this podcast together. We both knew that the other uh, bass player that the Doors recorded with, I guess the only other one, was uh, the guy from Elvis Presley's band. That's right. And you and I, because we're so mired in the minutia of this stuff, we were like, oh my God, yes. Well, that, that guy, and I, 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 you know, he actually wrote a book about his life. As a, well, as a there you go. So player. that makes three of us that think that's a big deal. And um, I had a hard time picking a fifth, so I had to have a tie. Okay. Uh, the first one is my choice, The Wasp Texas Radio and the Big Beat. Yeah, that that I love that song. I don't know what it is about it. Hmm. I don't know. It's just such a weird vocal, and it's tied with Peace Frog because every time I would play Peace Frog on the radio, people would like in those days pull their car over and call me from a phone booth and thank me. Really? So I I know that means something to someone. Yeah. So that those are my top five. So I'm anxious to hear yours. Okay. Well, I got to tell you, I haven't heard that one on a top five list. I mean, it is it's a great song. Yeah, it you is. You really have to be a Doors fan to. Uh, yeah. Well. Know that well. One. But uh, anyway, uh, so uh, first, before I give you my my top ones, a uh, couple of uh, my favorite uh, facts on the Doors. They were the first American band to accumulate eight consecutive gold LPs. Now. A gold record signifies over $1 million in sales. Uh, they have sold $1 million in sales, which is, they changed it, actually. I should correct it. It's 500,000 copies. So it's, it's units record. versus sales. Right. Okay. And a million units is a, what they call a platinum selling album. So anyway, they've, they've now sold uh, close to 100 million records worldwide, uh, making them one of the best-selling bands of all time. And Rolling Stone magazine has ranked them 41st on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. In 1993, and I want to play this before I tell you my top uh, five. In 1993, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by none other than Eddie Vedder. And we happen to have that. The Doors went on in 1967 to make their first record uh, that had songs like Break On Through, Light My Fire, The End, was on the first record. And that was in 67. and 68, there was the record Strange Days, People Are Strange, Moonlight Drive, uh, Waiting for the Sun came in 69, Soft Parade, Morrison Hotel, L.A. Woman was in 71 with Riders on the Storm, Lover Madly. The reason I mention all these is it just amazes me to see all these songs and all these records within the period of 67 to 71. Six records. When I see that, uh, it just makes me really proud and honored to welcome them and induct to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Mr. Ray Manzarek, John Densmore, Robbie Krieger, and um, Jim's sister, Ann Churning, is here to accept his. So please, the doors. On behalf of my family, I want to thank you for honoring Jim tonight. Thank you very much. It's Ann Morrison. I'm Robbie Krieger. And uh, so many people to thank, but I'm going to keep it short. I'm just going to thank my parents, who happen to be right over there. Uh, <laughs> when the doors were first starting out, we were uh, kind of broke, and we needed some money to, to buy a piano bass for Ray to play the bass. And my parents loaned us $300. <laughs> and, and believe it or not, they never even asked for it back. I wish I could get a deal like that at City National, you know? So, 
I'm going to turn it over to the other guys. Thank you very much. We are the class, uh, theoretically, the class of 1967. And uh, least we forget, 1967 was the summer of love. What we're going to do is we're going to try to reinstitute into the 90s the feeling, the spirit of the 60s. That's what the doors are all about. That's what the 60s are all about. Let's try to, in the 90s, let's try to bring all the races together. Can we do that? Huh? Um, I, too, want to thank my parents uh, for eventually coming to terms with the lyric, Father, yes, son, I want to kill you. Mother, I want to... I want to send my love to Ray and Robbie, and most importantly, I want to thank Jim. So my favorite five Doors songs would have to be Crystal Ship, because that's the first song I ever heard by them, uh, Riders on the Storm, uh, the End, which we both agree on. Touch Me, which I love so much I bought the single. I couldn't even wait for the album to come out. And uh, Roadhouse Blues with one of Morrison's, I think, greatest lines where he shouts in the middle, well, I woke up this morning and I got myself a beer. Well, I like Keep Your Eyes on the Road. I mean, you know, again, these are, these are like bumper stickers. These are yeah. tattoo-worthy sayings. These are just things that set him apart. Uh, and I have a book of his poetry and I don't know if it's better. I think it's better set to music. I really do. But uh, he was definitely a poet first. And he had some wild, wild ideas. Wild ideas. Okay, let's get back to your interview with uh, John Densmore. Have you seen any of the recent uh, Laurel Canyon specials or movies that have come out? Yeah. Because you lived yeah, in Laurel Canyon. You and Robbie had a place. Yeah, I, I was a little confused. Let's see, there was... Um... Uh, Dylan's kid did one, right? Jacob, right. We, we were not in that one very right. much at all, but it, you know, it was kind of a flower power and, and we kind of wrote about the undeclared Vietnam war, right? Make a grave for the unknown soldier. We was sort of the hidden underbelly. We were darker. So maybe that's why we were not in that. I think we were in the next one. Yeah, yeah. We, and that was pretty yeah. good. Uh, you know, it was a renaissance. We all kind of knew each other. And it, once you played the whiskey, uh, Mario, the bouncer right. owner, would let you in free. Uh, so we all would go down when someone else was playing. and Everybody knew everybody. And it was a mm. great camaraderie scene. I mean, you know, Frank Zappa lived in the canyon. We went to his house and jammed. Everybody was up there. I got to ask you, because you mentioned in here a story of, of what Tom Petty told you about Jim, which I think is kind of fascinating. How did that come about? You ran into Tom. I mean, how did you get on that topic? <clears throat> well, I, I was invited to uh, do an interview on his, was it Buried Treasures? One of yes. his shows. Yes, right. He, an interview show. Yeah. And this was just a couple months before he passed and right and we were we had a great time you know he is so incredibly knowledgeable about music he's like a, a national treasure and uh, oh i'm still aching from seeing him go but uh, uh, we were talking about jim and he said well you know when uh, artists the really great ones 
they got the flame turned up so high, you just got to get the heat off of that. And, you know, then they burn out. Wow. And uh, right he was. And after that interview, he said, uh, we got to do it again. And, and I wanted to. Now, his checking out was, you know, was right. not like Jim was an alcoholic, <laughs> you know. Tom was not, but uh, he, he had some, I don't know, medication that for right. his hip or his knee or something messed up. Yeah. That's uh, some description of Morrison, the really great artists. They uh, get the flame turned up so high, you just have to get the heat off that because then they burn out. And, yeah, his book is great. His book is just like that. It, it yeah. really is. You think you've heard everything about Janis Joplin or whatever, but the way he writes it, it's, yeah, great book. And I, too, am still aching from Tom Petty's death. And I love that John is in touch with Questlove. So this is a great conversation. Let's hear more. What's it like getting high with Willie Nelson? <laughs> well, um, the story goes... Yeah, you know, I knew that uh, Willie would pull out his reserve, right. and I quickly said to him, uh, "I'm a cheap high man. You can smoke for me, you know." <laughs> and uh, I had a little hit, and then I found myself outdoors talking to the ocean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I want to qualify that Willie. Okay. Yeah, it works for him, but he's not. He he can function fine. He's so together right. and creative. You know, I mean, everybody's different. Yeah, and, I got uh, you. I love the way you describe the Doors rhythm section. Oh, Ray's <laughs> left hand and me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing. You guys did not have a bass player, as most people know. But you, you seem yeah. to think that that was a real plus for Ray. Well, uh, plus for for all of us, because there was more space. Right. Uh, it was a little difficult when Ray got si excited playing organ solos, because then the uh, left hand might speed up, too, and I'd have to pull the reins back. Right. But um, it, it left a simple, open sound and uh, room for more drumming. Right. <laughs> okay. Are you going to do another book, by the way, of any kind? Uh, Any plans? I don't think so. No. Okay. Just Although uh, people keep asking me, well, have you left anybody off this list? Maybe, yeah. maybe you got a part two of yeah. meetings with remarkable musicians. Uh, well, I love let your... Me, let, me, <laughs> let me fall down for a minute and then I'll... Uh, okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll I... retire and then yeah. I or won't well, do okay. another one. I don't know. I love the way you describe the drummers that had an influence on you. Like, uh, you know, Chico Hamilton and Elvin Jones. Maybe maybe there's a drummer's book in there. Oh. I thought that was fascinating the way you, you know, you said, uh, yeah, I, I took the ride, uh, borrowed that Chico yeah, Hamilton ride, yeah, yeah. symbol ride for uh, what's for the end. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, now you've planted a seed. Oh, okay. Definitely should do one. Definitely. John Densmore. He's a great guy with great stories, but uh, there is a Doors story that I wanted to get an answer to, and I've waited years to find out. No, it's not whether Morrison's alive or not. You'll hear the conclusion of my interview with John in a moment where he answers that question. Anyway, uh, years ago, however, I, I did ask Ray Manzarek about the conspiracy theory surrounding Morrison. Yeah, I mean, you have to, right? I came right out and I asked him. I think he's dead. 
But boy, there's some mysterious things surrounding his death. Sealed coffin and uh, the death certificate that listed no cause of death, just said his heart stopped. And, uh, and the way he was buried and quickly put in the ground and uh, nobody knows. And now Pamela, Pamela's the only one who really knew and uh, she's gone. I don't know for sure, man. I never saw, you know, I didn't see Jim Morrison dead and I didn't see Jim Morrison put in the ground. Many myths surrounding Jim Morrison, and he was one of the most uh, romanticized figures in rock uh, music. Also, uh, getting in trouble, always, eventually earning the dubious distinction of being the first ever rock star to be arrested while on stage. And that was on December 9th, 1967, New Haven, Connecticut, where Morrison was with a female fan in the backstage area of the New Haven Arena. John Densmore and Ray Manzarek pick up the story. Jim was like backstage before the show, and uh, these cops came back there, and they thought he was just some hippie, you know, from the street. So they tried to kick him out, and they ended up squirting him with mace. And uh, and then the promoter came and found out what was happening, and he made the cop apologize and blah, blah, blah. And so Jim was finally kind of cooled out. But then... When we got on stage, we started playing Backdoor Man, and in the middle of the of the song, Jim starts telling the audience, you know, what happened backstage. And the whole time, we're playing behind him doing Backdoor Man, and the rhythm's kind of going chunk, 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 chunk. And Jim's doing this rap, and all these police who are there to protect us all turn around and start watching us. And I knew we were in trouble, man, because Jim was just on top of it, and the rhythm was just, it, it was shaman time. And Jim goes on and he says, and then he reached around behind him and he brought out this little black can of something. Something looked like shaving cream. And then he sprayed it in my eyes. It was mace, man. I was blinded for about 30 minutes. Jim tells the story on stage. And the cops busted him, man. They arrested him right on stage and said, that's it. You're busted. Disturbing the peace. Uh, God knows what else they charged him with. And that cop came right up on stage. Jim sticks the microphone in the police captain's face, and he says, go ahead, man, say your piece, say your thing. And there's a photo of that, too. I'm walking over in this photo to stop Jim because I knew what was going to happen. Uh, Jim, you've gone too far. You're in trouble, man. But there was nothing I could do. I, I couldn't stop it, man. And they just hauled him away and took him into jail. Well, Morrison was charged with inciting a riot, indecency, and public obscenity. <laughs> um, he posted, but I know, but don't forget, I mean, Stephen Stills didn't write for what it's worth about the war. He wrote it about the cops beating up people on the Sunset Strip. So that was, you know, things were so different back then. Uh, in uh, 1965, uh, that was the charge that Morrison exposed himself, but I don't know anybody that can affirm whether or not he took it out which is kind of sad because if you're going to expose yourself in public, you'd want someone to remember. Wait a minute. You anyway, don't have the video. You don't have. The no, video? that's what I'm saying. Nobody can remember. I mean, can you imagine you get arrested for indecent exposure, but no one can actually claim that they've seen it. Right. Pretty sad. Anyway, right. Morrison was convicted, but he was free on appeal when he uh, tragically died. Yeah. Here's the uh, final segment of my uh, recent interview with John Densmore. And I confronted him with one of the great uh, cold cases of rock. Now, what I mean is uh, 
Well, it was a, a Jim Morrison sound-alike used to embellish the Doors live albums that have been released posthumously. Now, you need to know some background because we mentioned a guy named Bruce Botnick uh, who worked with the Doors on all their albums. He was their audio engineer and record producer on the L.A. Woman. And there's a guy named Danny Sugarman, who's also mentioned here. He began working with the Doors when he was 12 years old by answering their fan mail. And then following Morrison's death, in July of 71, he replaced the original Doors manager. So there's a guy who got a real fantasy job, huh? Uh, Sugarman co-wrote No One Here Gets Out Alive, the bestseller about the Doors that they based the movie on. And he did his own autobiography, uh, Wonderland Avenue. This guy was a character, believe me. He later uh, married Fawn Hall of the Iran Contra Affair in 1991. You remember that? Oh, I do. The whole cocaine thing. That was, yeah. Really, yeah. He passed away in 2005, though, but... Um, uh, anyway, here's, uh, here's the last part of my uh, conversation with John Densmore. Okay, now I want to I tell you this story that I've had for about 25 years, and um, I've been telling it to people, and they look at me in absolute amazement, and most of them agree. Now, I hope this doesn't get you too upset, but I'm gonna, I, just, I told you earlier about uh, in, in the mid-80s, I did the official Doors uh, 20th anniversary radio show, and I, was, uh, I came to L.A. and hung out with Danny Sugarman, and he organized everything. The three of you came by. We did extensive interviews. We planned the thing. I think we somehow, Danny, got a little unreleased uh, clip uh, of Morrison to put. So it was like uh, the official show. And I, I, I said to him, uh, when we were planning other stuff, I said, Danny, you got any live tracks that we can maybe just put in the show that hasn't, because I said the doors put out, you know, absolutely live, but I hear these stories about all these tapes, but there's no live albums. So he said to me, he goes, well, I'd like to, but he said, problem is we've gone through a lot of the tapes and we find that every once in a while, you know, a guitar goes out, a horn goes out, something goes out technically and we can't do and you know, or Jim's voice will go out and you know, okay. Maybe we can fix the instruments. They can be redubbed and everything, but there's nothing we can do about Jim's uh, mic going out. There's nothing really, there's no complete shows. This was in, 19, in the mid-80s that he told me this. Now, two years, now, I'm up there and Danny starts, you, well, I don't have to tell you. I mean, Danny's giving me the whole thing on his, I think that his new book at the time was out, The Illustrated History. Yeah. History of the Doors, okay. Word. He says, Danny, I want you to listen to something. He plays me a tape. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. This is a band. This is before there were cover bands. This was a Doors cover band. I don't know if they were called Crystal Ship or whatever they were called. But Danny goes, I want you to listen to this and tell me what you think of this guy. So he plays me the tape. And I said, I'm Danny. That guy is spot on. Marson. There's no question. He goes, yeah, I think he's pretty good. And so does Bruce Botnick. That was the end of the conversation. Two years later, these live albums start coming out left and right. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think, and I don't know if you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't want to admit it. I think Danny and Bruce Botnick got that guy to fill in the Morrison parts. What do you think? Thanks. <laughs> oh, I hate to be the spoiler. Uh, Bruce has uh, hovered over everything we've ever done, and he's always tweaking and once in a while like maybe Robbie will put in a little guitar repair or whatever uh, maybe he's moved Jim's vocal around or something but I doubt that he got some substitute but I'm going to ask him 
You're not sure. I knew it. I knew it. I said to myself, <laughs> if I ever get the chance, the only people that are going to answer this is going to be Robbie or John or Botnick. But I don't think Botnick would admit it. And do you know the band? Do you know the band I'm talking about? That was like the one of the first cover band. Was it called? Crystal Ship or something, you don't know what I'm referring to? Uh, no, uh, Wild Child. Wild Child, that's it. Yeah. That was one of the first cover yeah. bands. Well, he's, investigate he's it, John. Investigate it with Bruce. If you find out, let me know, because the next show we're working on is called Cold Cases of Rock and Roll, and we need to get the answer on this. Okay. <laughs> Listen, John, I want to thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. been a big fan all these years, and I appreciate you. Uh, being, being on has been great. So thank you very much. Hey, it was a pleasure, Denny. And uh, in a year, yeah. probably there'll be a paperback out. Okay. And maybe we'll be able to see people, and who knows? We'll cross paths again. I'll give you a, an open invitation right now to come back and when the paperback's out, and but you got to have the answer to that question. Okay, okay. Okay. Done. Thanks, John. All right. Bye. Well, you know, Denny, he did not deny it. Okay, and no, uh, Dave Brock is the name of the Jim Morrison soundalike. Uh, oh, okay, he's got that good. tribute band called Wild Child. They're appearing tonight somewhere. Okay, uh, I say we hunt them down and we give them a polygraph. We get Let's them, put on. them on the poly. Yeah, really, it'd be a great discussion anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, it's uh, it's our job to uncover these things, and you know, <laughs> what can I say? I don't think it's our job, but okay. <laughs> All right, so we're going to bring this episode to the end. Pun no, I got that. I got With that. Comments from uh, John and Ray on the legacy of the Doors. So uh, roll it. What the Doors had was four people totally committed to their vision and and nothing stopping them and obsessed with doing it together. It, it takes years to get your songs and do it. That's what I learned from that. It took the four of us to make it happen. Uh, It took three Apollonians to handle the Dionysian guy, you know what I mean, to balance him because he was so strong. It really was uh, special. It's because we tried to do our best. You know, we never tried to compromise. We never tried to be commercial. We never tried to be overly slick or polished. And I think the people today are uh, picking up on that, the fact that the Doors succeeded in making a kind of a universal, timeless kind of music. I don't think you can date us. We don't date from the 60s. You know, Jim wasn't singing about protesting in the streets or flower power. We didn't do any of that kind of stuff. You know, the opening uh, sequence of Apocalypse Now features the, uh, the Doors' The End, which was uh, the movie came out in 79. And as long as their music is used in so many films and television shows, their, their legacy is just going to continue to grow. Uh, I want to give the final word uh, to uh, Ray Manzarek. It's his final remembrance of Jim Morrison. Riders on the Storm was the last song that Jim Morrison ever recorded. It was the last song we did on the L.A. Woman album. It was the last song to have the vocals put on. It was the last song to be mixed. And it was Jim Morrison's final song. It's strange that that's the last song I ever heard the man sing. And I got to tell you, I really miss that guy.
All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. And hey, we want to hear from you. You can email us at hello at therockpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're on Instagram at The Rock Podcast. And find us on Facebook, therockpodcast.com. Okay. So long. Thanks for joining us. Remember, this is the only podcast that matters. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.